What's interesting is that I was literally on a call at lunch today, multi-billion dollar, well-known organization, and I was having this call, which is simple Q&A around what is account-based marketing. And it baffles me, like I have to like go through, they're like, okay, explain to us what account-based marketing is. And this is a multi-billion dollar organization. There are 100 plus people on that marketing team and I'm explaining, I have to like go back, like take a few steps back physically, emotionally, mentally, and go back to like, well, account-based marketing means you're focusing on accounts and targeting the right edit. You know, like that part, it kind of kills me, but it also opens up this idea that, oh my God, even right now, people are still wondering what that is. People are still not thinking that targeting the right accounts is the must, like literally the step number one. If you don't, you're targeting. So all that to say is that you're right, but the caveat to all this is that the leadership is not there in these organizations. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now that was Sangram Vadre. Sangram's the co-founder and chief evangelist of Terminus and host of the Flip My Funnel podcast. Now, we had such a fun conversation because Sangram is such a big thinker. He's got the big picture in mind. And in this episode, we dig into some big topics. We're going to start talking about how you fine-tune your message and transition that we're getting to one of Sangram's current passions, which is being intentional. And what that means about creating community and what that all does for the individual and for the company. And you know, I have to admit, one of the things I really admire about Sangram is his ability to enroll people in his vision, his big picture. We're also going to talk about personal improvement and leadership's role in motivating people to invest in themselves. We also talk about why CEOs need to have experience selling their own products. That's right, direct experience selling their own products. We get into all of this and much, much more. As I said, stick around because we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. And before we get to Sangram, just want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. Thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Sangram, welcome back to the show. Andy, so good to be here with you, man. Long time. A long time. I don't think we've actually seen each other since we spoke at an event almost a year ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, yeah, Durham, right? Like, that was... Uh, yeah, Durham, North Carolina. That was fun. Yeah, that was that was a fun event, fun location as well. Yeah, so, yeah, well, back when we could travel. <laughs> the good old Remember days. Remember those days? Yeah. Remember those days? Remember we could travel? The good old days. I yeah. Think, I mean, I on record, I do... I feel like I went through this time of the first week was like, oh, this is weird. Second week, oh, this is great. I'm spending time with my family. We're going biking at 3 p.m., you know, a month later, oh my God, get me out of here. Like, so I think we're all like, I've gone through like this phrase, like I need a break to go to work so I can actually need a break to, and work something. Well, I feel like most people just need a break from work, right? Because work has expanded for, for almost everybody I know. It's like, including me. It's like, yeah, we'll no, just keep working. What else are we going to do? You know, seen everything on TV. And <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So you're in Atlanta, right? Yes, sir. So they're not doing too badly there from a COVID standpoint. I've stopped looking at 
think anything right now. Yeah. I'm like completely like, okay, it is what it is. Uh, the good news is we have a huge tennis community. So like my son get to be in the tennis camp, uh, which is like the furthest you can be from another person because you're playing. Well, that's tennis. true. You're very socially distanced playing, <laughs> playing tennis. That's right. Yeah. And he and I ends up playing uh, almost every day in the evening. Um, so it's like, it's fun. Keeps well, that's not bad. That's not bad. So school's over for them for the summer. I think the school has been over for like six months now, right? Like in yeah. some ways, this is the longest summer. They will remember it forever. Yeah, and it it may bleed into the fall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think open question whether kids are going back in the fall. So so I, I've got a sir, tough question for you up front here. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago on LinkedIn, I ran this contest as asked people in five words or less, tell me what you sell. And it's not just, you know, the product, but it's the five words that sort of tell you what the value is for the buyer as well. I'll just give you one word. Uh, maybe on, on Oh, one word. He's gone. Oh, super discounted. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, we, I, I mean, I could go almost two different ways to say one, one word would be like revenue. Like we, mm-hmm. we literally help our customers generate revenue, like period. Now that always is generic because I don't hope there are. I hope there are no organizations that said, "Hey, we actually can reduce the revenue." <laughs> so it might sound generic. So the other way is that you know um, I would say is like we sell um, people the ability to have digital billboards. You know, to think about it right now. When you think about that, a lot of people want oh, digital billboards. Like, what is that? It's imagine. Mm-hmm. Imagine having a digital billboard in front of your house or your company or anything, anywhere you go, just right in front of you. You walk out of the house and you look at that and you, you know, you're, you just look out the window. You look at that. That's kind of what we do. We surround our customers, our future customers with your message anywhere they go online. So it's almost like a digital billboard for them anywhere they go. Yeah. A, uh, omnipresent digital billboard. Yeah. Yes. Wake up no, at two a.m. Could be a better way of saying that, but I like the I like the digital billboard. I try to think of other words we could use. So, all right, we'll think about that as we're as we're talking. But that that's good. I like that. It's a good image. That's really what we're trying to say. Is is you know, I think every company, every seller needs to feel comfortable that if, if a customer asked them what they sell, they could tell them in five words or less in a way that the customer could go, oh, "Of course, I get it." Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just like that, I get it, and their mind fills in the rest of it. Yeah. Because that's really what you want. That's the effect of storytelling is, yeah, I'll give it that bit. And then you you fill in the blanks. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is you probably have heard about this. Uh, it's literally on my desk, uh, Story Brand. Yeah. Yeah. I've got it. Donald Miller uh, book. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, it's literally here because I refer to it on a regular basis. And I love the way he would always talk about like the problem, talk about the problem as you go into it and talk about their problem. So they say, oh, yeah, that's my problem. Tell me how to solve. It's like so. It's almost in our case, like the way I have codified for us or decodified mm-hmm. for us is like, well, less than one percent of uh, the leads that most marketing and sales teams generate don't turn into revenue. And you know, if you are a CEO or a marketer, like, yeah, that's actually right. I have a problem with my <laughs> marketing and sales organization. And and then I think once you say that, oh, I am that person that feels right. that pain. Then the secondary, the third statement to that as you add to it is like, well, and, you know, we just help. We are the guide. We're not the hero is such a critical part of the whole equation that we don't have. We're not. You're the hero. We're the guide to help you address that, change that equation. I think it, it resonates quite a bit. 
Well, and it's an important distinction, right? Is is yeah, sellers don't often think to make sure that they're not the hero of the story, <laughs> which is 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 interesting. I was reading a a book about listening uh, this last weekend, and and they referred to some studies about you know when you're listening to someone is is you can have one of two responses. One is called a shift response, and one is called a support response. And the shift response is. Which is very common with sales is you know customer says, or maybe it's not a customer. You, let's say you're having a conversation with somebody and they said, you know, I just recovered from having a you know serious illness. Mm-hmm. And shift response is, yeah, you know, I I I was sick you know last year too. Yeah, wasn't that tough, right? And it's like you've shifted the story to look you as the focus suddenly. Yeah. It's not about them. Where the support response is, well, that must have been really hard. How how long did it take to get over it? Or you know, how are you feeling now? And as sellers. I see people do that all the time. You know, yeah. the customer, yeah, they ask a question, customer gives a response, and then they they think they're building rapport by relating it to themselves, but what they're really doing is taking the focus and putting it on themselves. That is so that is so interesting. You say, and I think it's so different than in parenting. Like I got two kids, like Krish, my son, he's nine, my daughter is yeah. Yara, she's five. And when they're when Krish has a bad like game, like uh, if I say to him, like, hey, you know. Oh man, that you know that that was a bad game. I I know how it feels. He's like, you have no idea how it feels. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. right? Like you know, he would, <laughs> the good thing about kids is that they will tell you how bad of a salesperson we are. Yeah, that's parents. right. Um, so so he would give me that feedback. Oh, you have no idea that like I really went. It was really bad. I'm like, oh okay, yeah, you're right. I, I don't know. But tell me more about it, right? I think I would. It's it's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, so shift versus support. Okay, so one of the things that your community movement you're, you're building is this idea about being intentional. So tell us about that because yeah. this is, I think, is very, very interesting. It has been a phenomenal journey in the last, you know, five years as a co-founder of Terminus, you know, being, being in, that shoe, in those shoes for five years. I think I learned this one thing, which is being intentional is more important than being brilliant. So So define intentional, though, for us, so people understand. Totally. So let me repeat that. Like Being intentional is way more important than being brilliant. What I mean by that is all around, like I feel like from day one when we started the company to day now, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's still the (laughs) same. It's literally the same. And it might feel like, oh, no, you must have. People say, hey, can you run our mastermind? Can you come and help us? How did you grow like this fast? It'd be amazing. Like, you know, because we went from a million in revenue for the first year to five the second year to 15 the third year. So in many ways, I should be like, oh, I know it. But I know the truth is I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And none of us had idea. And I still don't. Like, I still I, I keep going back and saying, what worked? There's something that worked. And I'm trying to figure out. But the part that worked, I feel like if I have to really boil it down to the most important part of it that I don't want me to lose sight of and for people to not lose sight of is that that we were intentional about building a community and meaning that we made sure that we are never never the focus of attention so for example when we did the flip my funnel community we still today we have done 10 plus conferences we still don't have a product vision statement or anything like that my keynote doesn't even talk about terminus Mm-hmm. They're a booth like everybody else even today. 
So it's it's like we were intentional about the fact that we want to truly become a community-centric, create an industry-centric conference and things. And for individual, for me, I realized that I think one thing I did, and I think one thing a lot of people in the early days and throughout done, is that every week, every week, I think we became somewhat one person better than the last week. Mm-hmm. And very, very incrementally thinking about it, not exponentially, nothing happened overnight, even though now it might look like, oh, a million to five to 15, that seems exponentially. No, it was literally every week, we're just trying to figure out, oh, this is how the sales comp work. This is how the salespeople are incented. Uh, this is how a customer is buying. This is the message you're resonating and never be, be okay with like, we got it. It was never, we never said that. We, I still don't think we can say that. So it's a matter of being very intentional about learning and growing every single week by 1% or, or around that. And if I can go back and say, you know what? Yep, I learned something. Uh, we grew a percent personally, mentally, emotionally. Then I can actually grow the organization that way. I'm not growing. I cannot grow the organization that way. Like to add on, like just another quick point on that is when we hired people, this is another big pain point I realized is that some people stayed in the company and some didn't. And when I look at the people who didn't make through the transition of like, you know, from a million to a 5 million to a 15 to all the, wherever we are now is that they did not grow as quickly with the same amount of percentage as the company was growing. So if some we are going 100%, each one of the person in the company needs to grow 100% in their way of leading. And that's extremely hard. Like, I don't fault anybody for that. Well, but it's it's so funny you bring that up because it's very similar to something that I've been talking about recently too, which is, is that, uh, but mostly specifically about sales, not the company, but it applies to a company, is that as a profession in sales, we spend all this time saying, well, you know, salespeople are failing, right? Not enough for hitting quota and salespeople don't, you know, learn fast enough. You know, they don't take to the training. They don't onboard fast enough. It's always, you know, if you look at the literature on LinkedIn every day, it's about basically about how salespeople are failing. <laughs> and, and when you really think about it though, is you say, okay, well, well let's look at the, the process of improvement. To your point, one percent a day, whatever that that aggregate number is. And I'm a huge believer of that sort of aggregation of marginal gains. I think it's it's a huge important concept. But if you look at sales performance improvement on an individual level as a process, you know every process has a rate determining step. And I think for sellers, I'm interested in your opinion on this. The rate determining step is the rate at which their managers improve. I don't think sellers can improve their performance faster than the rate at which their managers improve their performance. Oh, man, I love this. This hits right to the core of right. why a lot of, lot of the sales teams don't hit a cumulative quota, whatever that is they have as a commercial sales, as a um, as an enterprise sales reps and all that stuff is their mm-hmm. their ability, their leadership ability to to challenge them, to to train them and go on. And here, here's something I've also found along those lines is there's not enough investment made on in the on the sales team to improve meaning like a lot of times even in our like we started doing this now a lot more than we did before which is like all right some of them are new salespeople, some of them mm-hmm. are tenured salespeople, and they both have the same quota and we expect both of them to do at the same level no they're, they're not no. 
a manager was like, he's an incredible or she's an incredible manager. Now we're expecting her. We just gave her commercial as well as enterprise. And now she has completely different sets of people and different motions that she has to run, but she has never done that before. And we have never invested to give her like, all right, hire somebody, hire a coach, hire, have mentors, here's money and funding for it. We never did those things in the early days. Mm -hmm. And I think, Man, we we missed on some of the, the key people because they got burnt out um, by just doing and learning on the job everything, and we burnt sure. out some of the people too. So I agree with you, hundred percent. Yeah, because I think I take it a step further, and I again, as you know, people that listen to the show a lot hear me talk about this increasingly. But is is yeah, the numbers around us? We spend twenty billion dollars a year on sales training in the United States, and and if we when I go through and ask people how they learned how to sell, the primary answer I get back is, well, through a, a boss or a coach. Mm. You know, it wasn't my training. It was, you know, watching somebody. It, was, it could have been a peer. But, you know, anecdotally, because everybody's, you know, got their own recollections. But in my case, I estimate about, yeah, 60, 65% of what I feel I learned that comprised why I learned from a coach or a boss at some point in my career. Um. And and that sort of consistent with with and so training sort of always sort of falls at the bottom, and so I say okay, well if the coach is so important, if we're spending twenty billion dollars a year in the U.S. on sales training, of which ninety five percent of it goes to train sellers, why don't we just flip that balance? Why don't we make ninety five percent of that investment on training managers how to coach and manage? To your point, yeah, equip the people that are are the most instrumental in helping sellers learn how to sell to actually help them learn. Yeah. It's, I think it, it comes to the leadership level and understanding of it. Classic example, you and I have talked about account-based marketing, account-based selling and all that stuff previously as well. Most people probably listening to have heard about it and, and familiar with, with those mm-hmm. phrases. What's interesting is that I still, I was literally on a call at lunch today. If you, you know, a, you know, multi-billion dollar, well-known organization. And I was having this call, which is simple Q&A around what is account-based marketing. And I'm, I'm like, it, and it baffles me. Like I have to like go through, they're like, okay, explain to us what account-based marketing is. And this is a multi-billion dollar organization. Sure. There are a hundred plus people in that, uh, on that marketing team. And I'm explaining, I have to like go back, like take a few steps back physically, emotionally, mentally, and 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 go back to like, well, account-based marketing means you're focusing on accounts and targeting the right, you know, like that, that part, it kind of kills me, but it also opens up this idea that, oh my God, even right now, people are still wondering what that is. People are still not thinking that targeting the right accounts is the must, like literally the step number one, if you, if you don't, mm-hmm. you're targeting. So all that to say is that you're right. Uh, but the, the caveat to all this is that the leadership is not there in these organizations a lot of times to actually get people to invest and, and even recognize that that's the problem. Well, and to my point is, is if frontline managers are the rate determining step of the rate of improvement of sellers, the rate determining step for the improvement of the sales managers is the directors and then the sales leaders. You know, it all starts at the top. Absolutely. I agree 100%. You know, it's just there, it seems to me, even in some of these big companies, is there's a sort of acceptance yeah. that, yeah, this is the way sales is. 
Like, yeah, what, what, what is the stats? You know the stats better than that. Like, you know, like it is expected for like what? How, what percentage of the sales teams are expected to not meet their quota? Half, roughly, is the, what the, the studies are showing, yeah. Yeah, and I, I look at that and I hear that and I hear from our sometimes leadership. show, I'm like, that is bonkers. Like, why would we Why would we set people for failure? It almost seems like yeah. we're setting people for failure. So, like, I mean, I'm going to flip the mic on you. It's like, why is that? Why? What can founders like me and what can people do to change that? Well, yeah, there's no no easy answer to that. <laughs> but, I mean, it is, a, it is a cultural thing. I think, I mean, you think about it. I urge sales managers to sort of think like they're a product manager. And the product they're putting out is a salesperson. Mm. Okay. So would you put out a product that only works 50% of the time? That's a good way to put it. I love that. Of course you wouldn't, right? You wouldn't even begin to think about it. So, you know, this obviously has impact on hiring and onboarding and and how you you teach people how to sell, right? Everybody defaults to training, but what if it's not training, right? What if the way people are learning is really by watching you, Sankram, sell? I mean, I go back to my own experience. I, I learned through bosses and oftentimes observing them. Yeah. Right? I had no training in selling large, complex sales or enterprise sales, and yet you end up selling deals worth tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like I learned by what other people were doing. It wasn't sitting in a classroom. Yeah. I mean, in, in over 40 years of sales, I've had eight weeks of training. It all came in the first year. Wow. That's profound. That's profound. And and also, I had a guest on the show recently, a guy named Peter Economy, a book author, and wrote this book about first first time managers. And and he's a columnist in Inc. Magazine. People can read there. And he does found some research that said that the average manager is in their job ten years before they get trained the first time. In spite of all the investment that you just talked about of billions yeah. of dollars, that's that doesn't go. Well, not to- sales manager. This was this was yeah. first time managers in general, yeah. but it. It's no different in sales, right? Yeah, man, that's crazy. The average age, 42, when someone gets their first management training. No wonder we got problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just, well, I think it's it's just time to rethink, right, what we're doing. Because why are we accepting that this is the way it is? Yeah. And at the same time, accepting this is the way it has to be. Well, let me, let me maybe share um, my, the first sale. At Terminus. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you that story? No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm a marketer. So mm-hmm. like that's kind of my default uh, state. Apparently marketing and sales is one and the same thing is you learn as you go. It's like, you can't be good at one and bad at others. Like you typically are actually either good at both or neither. Uh, yeah. Big lesson, big lesson. Anybody in sales, they got to know marketing. They got to know copywriting. They got to understand messaging. They got to understand how to understand emotions, the story framework, the story arc. If people think that that is a marketing thing to do, wake up. Like I'd say, people should go pick up the Donna Miller story frame. Uh, yep. the pick, uh, do go and do some copywriting classes. I think it's, it's super helpful other than anything. Okay, so that's just a side. I remember... Uh, when we started uh, co-founder Terminus, my co-founder said, well, you know, you got to, you know, we all got to sell. I'm like, yeah, we, we all got to sell. You sell. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, we all got to sell. I'm like, well, my job, I'm a marketer. He's like, yeah, we all got to sell. And that was the first time I, I really started sweating because I realized I got to sell. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the sales empathy truly, truly, profusely came out of my sweat. In, uh, mm-hmm. during, that, during that call but I remember the first call 
uh, like there's several calls, but the first deal that that we closed, um, and it was with me, Eric, my co-founder, and Amanda, uh, who was one of the the early interns who was helping set up some of these calls. So we set up the call and did the demo. So pumped up, so fired up. If you think I'm normally fired up, that time I was like jumping out of my skin, skin and getting to the Zoom. Like, like this is the greatest thing, slice of bread. Great. And, and at, the, at the end of the call, she said, and her name was Gretchen. She's still our customer. And Gretchen would say, oh, Sanger, okay, this is good. Uh, how much is it for? And we, we never talked about it internally. So I had to put her on mute. <laughs> hey, how much are you going to charge for this? <laughs> yeah, what is this winning call? Like, what, what is, he's like, you're the marketer. You come up with I'm like, okay, 250 bucks a month. Uh, she, he's like, yeah, sounds great. Unmute. Uh, how about 250? I mean, that's the worst. Like, how about, right? So that how was, about 250? <laughs> yeah, Not about, that you're open to negotiation, but yes. <laughs> yes, you can do it for zero, but how about 250 bucks a month? And she's like, okay, great. Send me the order form uh, or invoice. I'm like, okay, great. Awesome. And then we put the phone down, Googled what is an order form and an invoice <laughs> look like, right? I mean, so I learned that, you know, it was really interesting. I understood like how hard it is to sell. And I ask every marketer, every founder, every like, be part of the sales process, be listening to those calls, because that's how you learn what's going on. So even today, at le- every week, I'll at least listen in one or two calls or do Q&A at least one or two times because it keeps me close to the ground. So essential. I mean, for founders, they have, I mean, they have to know how to sell the product, right? I mean, that's, that's like a, uh, yeah, lesson number one. Yeah. But I mean, I, th- I agree with you for, for marketers, is they have to know how to sell. And it could be because they get a situation like yours where everybody has to sell. Um, I've been in those situations with small companies where turn to marketing people and say, okay, yeah, we all got to sell now. And uh, yeah, one instance, a small company with like two salespeople and three marketing people. And, and oh, wow, that's a flip number. I typically don't see marketing bigger than sales. Well, they were sort of sales engineers as well as yeah. the marketing guys, and and but yeah, the company sort of hit a rough spot, and and I would I'd been in a different part of the company. I was brought back in to to sort of turn this one around, and yeah, I said, hey, everybody's got to sell. And what's interesting is <laughs> of the five people, four walked pretty quickly. Yeah. Marketing guys stayed. The head marketing guy stayed. Turned into. It killer salesperson <laughs> he just he just crushed it um partially because he was he was so angry they thought that you know we sort of assumed he didn't know how to sell but yeah, yeah he just yeah guy went on close millions of dollars of business in the space of 12 months it was like yeah just a little motivation yeah. marketing chops now Speaking of marketing, you have this this interesting survey that you put up on a poll that you put up on LinkedIn <laughs> Just this week, right? I think the week we're recording, which is last week of June, about um, the five skills, or what are the skills? The number one skill. What is the number one skill that makes a good CMO? Yeah. And choice being PR communications, one demand gen slash operations, another sales partnership as uh, one, and the brand and product marketing the other. So, what are the early results saying? All right. So, so glad you brought that up. Because it pissed me off. It literally pissed me <laughs> off beyond, like, it almost conveyed and convinced me that this is why so few people have a shot to become a CMO. Not even a chance, not, not right. that they, but they don't, they don't even have a shot to become a CMO. 
it pissed me off really bad. Anyway, um, over 500 people responded to that. So it's, it's statistically significant uh, number of people, if, if you think about it that way. And the I, on purpose, put in sales as part of it. Right. Because I learned this through maybe after 10 years of therapy as a marketer that, <laughs> you know, you, the, the number one job of a marketer is to either incrementally or exponentially grow sales, period. If you don't do that, you should be fired or you shouldn't have that job. Like you don't understand what you're there, especially if you're in B2B. With that being said, so, but most marketers come into one of these three roles. They either are in demand gen or they're in the brand um, category, PR, communications, or something like that. So I said, okay, well, that's the question. That's how people come in. But I wanted, I hope people would say that a number one skill that you need is sales partnership, the relationship. Mm. I really expected that was the lowest. Lowest of all. Demand gen was number one. I think number two was brand and and PR. I'm like, good luck. And then, you know, number three was like operations. And like I'm like, what are you you like sleeping? So I think that just shows the the gap that there exists in the marketer's mind of what their role is and why they're there. And so it pissed me off. I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. I'm not really surprised, I guess. I mean, like you, you'd think it'd be different. But I mean, you and I talked about this last time you were on. Is is yeah you know, one of sort of the the challenges with ABM is is does uh, do you need alignment before you can successfully have an ABM campaign, or does alignment come as a result of executing an ABM strategy? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's got to happen at some point. Yeah. Well, I mean. Let's think. Like, let's. Uh, I'll give you another example. I did. I mean, that poll pissed me off, so I put another poll. That's what a good marketer does. He puts another <laughs> poll. <laughs> put another poll down. So I got. I put another poll, uh, but this was around like, okay, what is your top account-based marketing strategy right now? Like, you know, wanted to see. And I put in again the standard: is it demand generation? Is it pipeline velocity? Is it ex- is it expansion or is it retention? Especially right now. Like mm-hmm. which one of these four, those are the typical four things, demand gen, pipeline velocity, expansion, and retention. Same results. Like, I feel like what's wrong? Maybe I need to find out if I have the right people following me or responding to this or not. But <laughs> So what was number one on your? <laughs> number one was demand generation. And I'm, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, do we all not realize that we are in a time where your net new accounts and revenue are not going to grow at the same rate? Right. Yes, the title is a demand gen manager, but you can create demand with the existing pipe that is stuck, that, mm-hmm. that have raised their hands. Uh, do we not realize now that retention is the new acquisition? Let's mm-hmm. make sure that none of these customers uh, go away. Retain them. Figure it out. Right. If you have more than one product, should we not focus on expansion? So I was expecting retention, pipeline velocity, expansion, and then demand generation. Exact opposite of that. Like exact opposite of that. Well, but the thing that's so interesting because at the same time on the sales side, yeah, and you know, in early March and through sort of mid-April, you know, there's this this influx of you know the online people on LinkedIn saying, "Got to double down on your prospecting, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, now's the time. We've got to double down on you know." And everybody's talking, about, you know, lead with empathy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Why weren't you leading with empathy before? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you always want to lead with empathy. But it's like, 
it seemed like self-defeating strategies. As yeah, suddenly this uh, whole echo chamber of people saying, "Yeah, things really haven't changed, right? You really need to keep up the call volume, and and yeah, there are opportunities out there." But to your point, the opportunities are in retention and expansion. Yeah. I mean, that's where money is. I think I think this is a fundamental challenge that most organizations are facing that I think it really is like renewing the minds of the CEO and the CFOs in some ways, I feel like. If as a CEO or a CFO, if they are giving their marketing and sales two different numbers, that's a problem. That's when yeah. the rap happens, right? Number two, I feel like, well, even if they have the same number, but you're overly focused on top of the, the, the pipe as opposed to looking at the, the money of the color of the money is still green, no matter where it comes from. And, and recognizing that the great business as a founder now with over a thousand com- you know, customers, they have raised a good amount of money. So what I've realized really big time is that, gosh, I would have less at the top, but I will uh, if I can have better gross margin and greater retention, that's a healthier, stronger business, greater valuation for the business, more money in the pocket for everybody in the organization, more value for the equity. I did not have this thought process at all. I always thought the more customers, the better. Wrong answer, right? So some of these things is like, I think there needs to be this education of SaaS businesses internally. So one of the things we have done right. internally, uh, to across the organization is like, here is how a good SaaS business look like. So our CFO and VP of finance ran that with our CEO. Like we just, we just had them run it. Like, okay, a SaaS business is not a good business when we have a leaky bucket. It's not a good mm-hmm. business if we have less retention. If retention is over 80%, here's what the valuation could look like as opposed to 70 with a higher top line. People's minds were exploded and we realized that this is something that we need to now continually do because there's an education gap that exists between what is the right business thing. Uh, but it really starts with the CEO and CFO really opening up and sharing that. Well, and I sort of talked about that at that event in North Carolina is, is that we were so focused on what's happening at the top of the funnel that not enough attention is paid on how do we actually win a higher fraction of these deals? How do we get better deals into the pipeline and how do we win a higher fraction of them? As opposed to saying, look, if we want double sales or gross sales 50% this year, then well, we need to put you know X percent more in the top of the funnel and we'll play the odds and assume we're going to get this bunch more out. I think I quote you a lot because I remember in that conversation, and I don't know if it was in that talk, but at least in one of the conversations you and I have had where you said, correct me on this, maybe I'm not quoting you right. Uh, <laughs> but If it's good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take credit for it, but go ahead. Uh, you said, hey, look, you know, that right now we have about five to seven X pipeline coverage. And in like 10 years, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was 1.5 pipeline coverage. It just means that we have more shit in the funnel right now. Mm-hmm. Like that's the problem. We need to fix that. And I don't know how we went from having 1.5x pipeline, which is a very tight process, to now having 5x pipe in order to get to the numbers. It, it's insane. Well, but I, I, because I think it got easier to get things into the top of the pipe. Yeah. And we now have all these great tools and technology to be able to, you know, automate calls and emails and you know, our sales engagement, sales enablement platforms is get more stuff into the funnel. Yeah. But there's a price you pay when you have that much in is that you pay attention to it and you have less time to spend on the good ones. So if you have a 5x pipeline coverage, yeah. your win rate is going to be the reciprocal of whatever your pipeline coverage rate is. It is. So the math is is 
is brutal. It's brutal. And I feel like it, it has made sales process almost weaker uh, mm. as an organization. It kind of almost systemic challenge, it feels like. We're like, okay, we're already expecting a lower quality conversion rate. That's mm-hmm. going to lead to lower quality communication. That's going to lead to a lower quality quota attainment. That's going to be lead to a lower quality that like it almost feels like we're already surrendering to, and it's almost the, the same thing. Like less than one percent of the leads turn into customers. So guess what? What we're going to do? We're going to get more leads. Right? That's right. Exactly. That's my whole point. And it's like, so I think one of the lessons we haven't learned about how to use, you know, all this great technology we have is that just because we can use it in a certain way doesn't mean that we should use it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think this is the disconnect we're still dealing with is, yeah, we can task our SDRs to make 50 calls a day and to send out 30 emails a day and, you know, 10 social touches a day. But should we? Yeah. Why? Yep. So, all right, Sangram, we've run out of time. but uh, And I, I didn't ask any of the questions really I had lined up to ask you, but... <laughs> That's the perfect, the perfect conversation. So uh, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, connect with you, how can they do that? Well, you know where I am on LinkedIn. Uh, that's where I am. The Becoming Intentional newsletter is also one of the LinkedIn newsletter. They're about, it's so interesting. There are over 17,000 people signed up for that newsletter. So that's fun. Um, so people can subscribe to that. But yeah, please reach out to me. I'll have, I know one thing for sure, that one of the hardest jobs in, in SaaS, in, 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 in the business that we are all in right now is sales. And I've, I've learned that as a marketer. I feel like that is the number one skill as a marketer to have a sales empathy. So if you have a marketer that you think they don't have that, send them <laughs> the podcast episode That's right. and they will probably recognize that, man, you better have that. Absolutely. And for people listening, yeah, follow Sangram on LinkedIn and so on. It's a good, good, good content posted there. I always, always get a chance to read it every day. So Sangram? Great to see you again. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good, man. Good seeing you. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. We are so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Sangram Vadri, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much again for investing your time with us today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.